Why did you get into magic in the first place? Well, I was a long-time Dungeons and Dragons player all through middle school and high school and most of college. Uh, and then I was in college marching band for several years and ended up in a in a in a work in a kind of a fluke workplace accident at a off a, at a loading dock. Uh, had a broke my leg, uh, and a buddy of mine who was in the band with me, you know, said, "Well, I found something I'd be interested in doing to kind of pass the time." It's this card game that a friend of mine showed me when I was on vacation, and he told me about magic. And I'd walk past a comic book store there in Pittsburgh. And saw that there was a poster for Magic that just said Magic the Gathering, and it had images of a whole bunch of cards um, without any text on them. It was just like the card frame with the art and the name of the card. And I remember seeing like Cole Gollum and Demonic Tutor and things like that, and I said, wow, this is a very fascinating looking game. And they said, that must be the one you're talking about. I said, yeah, that's it. Um, couldn't find any cards. This was before, right before the Fallen Empires came out. Uh, Revise was the core set. The Dark was the... the the expansion that was out. No one had any cards. There was kind of they had kind of sold out of everything they printed. It was going to be a while before more was on the marketplace. Looked around, looked around, couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. Told my mom I was looking forward to see if she ever. And she ended up mailing me uh, like a revised starter deck and a couple of booster packs. And those were my first cards that I got right at the end of college. Uh, and my so my roommate bought. He couldn't find any sealed product either, so he ended up buying a set of commons off somebody at the card shop from Revised. So his deck was just all of the Revised commons plus land, and my deck was a starter and two boosters. And we taught ourselves uh, using the rule book, um, and it was you know pretty arduous, but we could see this was going to be amazing if we ever figured it out, and we did. Uh, and it's funny enough, like I, I that's I pretty much quit playing Dungeons and Dragons cold turkey there the first day I played Magic. Uh, it was Magic from there on out. So how did you get from playing the game as a starting to working your way to working for Wizards of the Coast? Well, so when, in, at Pitt, where I went to school, there was a, a group that would play the student unions on, on, I think, Tuesday nights. And it was casual, a lot of multiplayer, uh, very fun, wacky decks, people doing all kind of crazy things. Uh, and then there was a group that played down, about a mile down the road at Carnegie Mellon University. A lot of math, science, tech people, very, very smart. Um, and they were playing the game a little more seriously. And they would show up every so often to, to pit and play against us. Uh, and learned a lot of things from them. But they, they were the ones that were kind of on the edge of the tournament scene, telling us, you know, you, know, you want to go here, there's going to be this tournament. You want to go here, there's a tournament. And I hung out at Pitt for a long, long time and ended up uh, qualifying for the Pro Tour hanging out with a bunch of guys from Pitt and once I got on the Pro Tour the guys from CMU invited me down and said come play with us you know we want you know we, we would love to have another good guy playing with us getting ready for the Pro Tour so I started drafting with the the CMU crowd after I qualified for that first Pro Tour fell in with them and Randy Bueller was one of those guys uh, and he he was angling to, you know for a position at Wizards for a long time and he eventually got in the door uh, in R&D after he won the pro, won a Pro Tour and then from there, I was like, wow, he got a job with them. And I wasn't certain that that's what I was wanted to do. And I wasn't certain they were going to hire somebody else from the same group of guys. But I saw that like the game had you know almost no upper bounds to what you could do if you stayed involved. So I was writing articles. I was playing on the Pro Tour, writing articles for the Dojo. I wrote some for Star City. And I was the, a contributing editor for a site called Meridian Magic, which 
hasn't existed for a long, long time. It was basically an aggregator. They just found articles from all over the web and combined them onto one site. Um, and I played on the Pro Tour for about two or three years, had a couple top eights. Um, and then I got a call from Mark Rosewater and said, we are gonna, we're redoing the Magic website. Uh, we want it to be a content site because it used to just be a, you know, here's the new set that's coming out, or is this Destiny? Here's the FAQ, we're done. Um, we want it to be a content site and we're looking for people with web experience that, you know, that know a lot about Magic that want to run it. And I said, wow, that's pretty amazing. And I was working as a data analyst. Uh, I have a, uh, a BS in chemistry that I would found out by the end of college. I don't really enjoy chemistry all that much. <laughs> uh, so I was just had a job that paid the bills and I was playing a lot of magic and said, wow, this is quite an opportunity. Sure, I'll put my name in the ring. And my wife had an insurance job she was getting tired of and wanted to change. So I said, okay, I'm about moving to Seattle. Went out for the interview, um, went to the next pro tour, which was one of the New York ones, the team pro tour, made the top four at that and then Mark Rosler said, we're not giving you the job. I said, oh, all right. That's a beating. Apparently they had found somebody with more web experience that wasn't a Magic player but had a lot more experience with the website. So, okay, fine. Kind of bummed. And then suddenly, um, but okay, I'm qualified for the Pro Tour for another year. We'll keep going at this. And then uh, I don't know, a couple months later, Rosewater calls me back and said, that guy's not going to work out. We want to have you instead. Oh, wow. So, that's how I got in the door. What was life for you like on the Pro Tour? Because a lot of people don't understand when it comes to what you do now. A lot of that is because of what you've experienced through the game and through playing it at the highest levels. That's true. But I, I do want to say that a lot of what I do now also comes from those years I spent playing in the card shop and with the guys at Pitt that were much more casual. In fact, I think that's why I am as good at my job as I am, to be honest with you, because I have the perspective of the whole array of, of players from, you know, goofing around with my brother building Minotaur deck versus Treefolk deck just to see who wins to you know, playing in the top eight of the Pro Tour. Um, the Pro Tour was terrific. It's, and a lot of it, you know, why it was so enjoyable was because there was a successful group of players in my local area that had already been there and done that. Mike Turian, Bueller, Eric Lauer, those guys had all been on the Pro Tour for a year or so by the time I got there. So they you know, introduced me to all the key players. They gave me good decks to play. I had a full-time job, so it wasn't super easy for me to play a ton of Magic all week long. But because I had a good support network, I didn't feel like I was you know, kind of cast adrift alone in this sea of sharks. Like I, I had a lot of good friends. I had good information. Um, that said, it's a pretty stress for me. It's pretty stressful. Like, I'm not used to, to being that intense all the time. I didn't come to Magic initially because I wanted some way to compete. Like, I didn't come to Magic because I felt like this was a way to prove I was better than other people. So those, those tournaments were very grueling. I, they would wear me out. They would get you know, migraine headaches by the end of all of them. People always ask me now if I miss that playing professionally. I, I don't. I don't. It's a grind. It's very draining. Some people can handle it better than I can, but... Uh, would, you know, I'm, I'm happy to kind of enjoy the game at a slightly more relaxed pace now. What is your best experience from being on the Pro Tour? It doesn't have to be a, a game. It could be um, a relationship you've developed or a good story about the Pro Tour and you, what it's done for you. Possibly. Well, obviously, it, it got me a, a career. Well, yeah, but I'm talking <laughs> so that's a, something that people wouldn't know. Well, I think the most... The, the thing that I like, love to tell people about was that I got to take my wife to Europe. 
you know, for the pro tour. That was the the time we were. I was on the U.S. national team, and that was the World Championships that happened in Brussels in 2000. And it was it was quite a uh, that was quite a ride. It was I qualified at regionals. I made the top eight at regionals. Qualified for nationals. Then ended up making the top eight at nationals and making the so you know had no idea that the. The, the story was going to end that well, that I was going to end up playing, you know, alongside John Finkel for the U.S. National Championship. I just started out, you know, driving to Columbus, Ohio to play in regionals, and it kind of culminated with me being able to take my wife to, to Belgium for a week. Uh, and, you know, that's the one thing, you know, when my my family, my people that play that aren't into magic, you tell them this is what I did and, and what it turned into, it just kind of blows them away. And the fact that it, well, it did was... There we are hoisting the trophy, the U.S. national team, you know, me and Finkel and a couple other guys with all the rest of the American players who I had looked up to for years, you know, all out in this audience clapping for us, stuff like that. What an amazing, amazing feeling. What was it like to play with John Finkel? Well, he's he's genuinely a very nice guy, uh, an intense competitor, but, you know, if you're on his side, he wants you to get better. And he doesn't, he's not like a drill sergeant, but he will offer all the advice you want. You can ask him any kind of question. He'll tell you exactly what you need to do to get better, exactly what to think about. It's funny because um, Finkel was, you know, obviously on the Pro Tour a lot longer than I was. So when Randy Buehler first got on the Pro Tour, he was a very good networker. He would bring all these good players to CMU uh, to test with them. Uh, and Finkel was one of those. So he came to Pittsburgh to stay with Randy for a little bit before a big event. And so Randy brought John down to the to the Pitt Student Union because you know, the Pitt guys were drafting down there. So he brings him down there. We're like, that's John Finkel. Oh my God! So me and all my Pitt buddies were like, okay, yeah, we'll draft with with, with Randy and, and Finkel. That'll be awesome. So my friend Tom, uh, who played on, you know, managed to get to one or two pro tours, but generally was just a casual player, sits down next to Finkel. We're drafting Tempest at the time. He opens his pack, takes his first card, and passes it to Finkel. Finkel fans through the pack. Fans through it again and says, you took either pacifism or muscle silver. I haven't figured out which one it was yet. And I was just like, what is this? Like, <laughs> this is some sort of demigod or something. How do you, we had no idea there were, you know, that the, the cards, you know, were, were in the packs in any kind of order that you could discern or anything like that. But he had just, you know, shown, like, it was like viewing the Matrix. So, uh, you know, he was always willing to share all that stuff. Um, and he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, in your opinion, is he the greatest of all time? That's really hard to quantify. Um, in many respects, I will say yes. Statistically, no. I mean, obviously, you cannot argue with Kai's no. seven Pro Tour wins. Yes. Um, but you know, the the one th- the the question I always hear posed, which I think sums it up well, is if you know the fate of the Earth depended on someone winning a match of Magic, who would you send as your champion? Uh, and it would be Finkel. I mean, the fact that he got elected to the Hall of Fame, uh, he got sent some boxes of product as, as you know, uh, thank you and uh, welcome to the Hall of Fame. He hadn't been playing Magic for a while. This was before Lorwin came out. And he decided to start some drafts up at his apartment. Next thing you know, he shows back up, wins a Pro Tour. Like, none of these other guys, no no offense to any of them, they're all very talented, but none of these other guys that got elected to the Hall of Fame, they're having a real hard time cracking back into the scene. You know, I think in general the world has gotten better. Magic Online has made the entire world better at Magic as a whole. So it's hard to, to, to dust it off and come back and, and, and matter. You know, we obviously Kibler and Raphael Levy and those guys have never quit, so they've been, they've been good for a long time. Um, but Finkel just kind of showed up out of nowhere and just crushed everyone. You know, and that is... 
that is a, an indicator of something super special that not you know it's not work put in it is just a, you just see things a different way than everybody else does what is it like to you to hear this weekend that people like Bob Maher and John Finkel and um, Alan Alan Comer and a lot of the greats of Magic Past have come here this weekend what does that mean to you as someone who's been on that level well I think for uh, some of those guys it's because we had made the announcement that uh, you know we're going to be changing the way worlds works and they wanted to come experience this 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 big festival, um, and that that means a lot. It means that you know, even though they some of them have moved on into other very successful careers, that magic is very much a part of who they are, and, and they they want to. They knew that they had to experience this kind of event at least one more time. What would it have been, say, this weekend that one of those players would have made the top eight? Would that have been special? Because uh, the reason why I do this is because not a lot of people know as much about the past magic as they should. Having John almost make a top eight at Pittsburgh. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah. Philadelphia, yeah. yeah. And, and do as well as he has done recently. Mm-hmm. But he finished, I think, 17th at the Grand Prix. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what would that mean... Someone like you who has been there, who has been there, has been there since Magic basically began, to see one of those legendary players make a statement like that. Oh, I think it would be a great story. Um, that said, I, when I look at the, what happened at this event, the way it played out in reality, it is hard to argue that this was not a, you know, a, a terrific, terrific outcome for this tournament. The fact that there's four guys from Channel Fireball that are kind of the contemporary greats. Um, I mean, one thing we're always looking at in R&D is, um, is the environment both fun and people just coming up to you and saying we're having a good time, and or if we look at you know how many people are showing up to play events, is it, is it always at high numbers? And right now it's very, very high, and people are enjoying standard and limited with Innistrad. And also, but it's like, is the format sufficiently skill-testing? I think we've been in, in the past, we've been in, in points in time where things are too fast, or there's things like Cascade where the games you know are de- determined on... Things that sometimes fall a little bit outside of the range of skill, but to see that these guys, you know, Paulo and LSV and, and Conley and, and Luis Scott Vargas and, and the rest of that top eight, like it says, we have some, some very good things happening right now in Magic. People are having a great time, yet the game is, is rewarding skill at just the right amount. Um, and yeah, it was, sure, it would have been cool to have Bob Maher. I, I don't think that was realistic. Uh, he certainly is not putting the time in that those guys are putting in. And to be honest, you know, that's the. I'm glad to see that being rewarded. That kind of like, we want to be the best, and we are striving to be the best, and it's working. You know, for those guys. One of the things that you guys have emphasized is that you want the experience from the new player that's learning up to the professional to enjoy the experience. There have been a lot of people that have really enjoyed it at an early age from. The experience of opening a pack and having a mythic rare come mm-hmm. into their hands. When you develop cards and have those kind of cards, so not all mythic rares are playable. Okay, not all mythic rares are playable. Okay, that's right. But when you get that moment when you see the kid, uh, they have a picture around the web page this weekend, opening a card and right. and he's just yeah. thrilled. What are those kind of moments for you, as a father? Yeah. To see a young child open something up and just be so amazed—it's—it's it's great. I mean, that's 
not entirely the reason why we did it, but we knew that was going to be uh, one of the outcomes, was that opening, you know, we thought opening boosters was just going to be more exciting when we introduced Mythic Rares. I mean, there was just, there was a little bit of a flatness to the experience prior to Mythics existing, but now, and I've seen my daughter do this, she collects Pokemon cards, she's had the same experience with that, just like, holy cow, look what I just opened, run around the house. Uh, and obviously our game's not targeted, I think those kids, they have a website with the car, and that's a little young for us. Yeah, uh, I mean the game is not aimed at them by any means, um, but I think even when you're just a, 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 I'll say a budget player, somebody who doesn't just get a case of every new set that comes out or a couple boxes to split with your buddies, but you only get a handful of packs and you want to make your your, your casual decks better, or you know you're slowly building your collection. When you get you know, a planeswalker or something like that, it feels really awesome, or, or a primeval titan. You know, it's just like wow, I just got one of the awesomest cards in Magic, and it feels really special. Um, and that is probably a little annoying to the guy that wants to, you know, who feels like he should have four of everything at his disposal at all times, you know, because now that, that got a little harder to do. But that's not who, that's not, certainly not who it's for. It's for the, you know, the guy you described who's just like, I busted a few packs, I'm looking to increment my deck by a couple of cards, and holy cow, it's, it's Karn Liberated. I've heard about this guy. You know, he is amazing. Now, being a father, mm-hmm. and... It's because you can't play and you, that's part of the rules. Do you feel it's difficult that your children can't play? Because because they're not allowed to play out at a level, considering you provide them such a great learning tool. Um, I don't have that regret. I think there's a couple guys in the company that I've talked to that have that a little bit. I know Ryan Spain, who we just hired to work well, just, but in the year, yeah. hired to work on Magic Online, uh, had a son that he was taking to Friday Night Magic, and Worth Wolpert, who's the director of digital business, he's got a, a, a son that's eight that enjoys playing the game, you know, and it's just like, well, you're never going to get to go do that part of it. Um, you know, and, and that's, that, it's, it's I'm, I'm sure that doesn't feel great for them, and I know that Randy Bueller's not on the Pro Tour anymore because his wife, you know, works in R&D, so this kind of immediate family rule that we have... To, to prevent conflict of interest, it's keeping those people from enjoying the game in that way. Me personally, even if my daughters could play at events, like I don't want to, like I I don't, I, I don't want to kind of the way, the way I deal with magic so often and so much and on such a high level that I'd rather do other things with them. You know, they have things. That I think if I kind of I won't say forced, but you know, shove magic on them that. That's not what they're looking for, and it's certainly, and I do it so much that I, I don't think that I would get the same thing out of it with them. There's so many other games that we play, whether it's other card games, board games, uh, stuff on the Wii or the computer, that there's so much else to do with them. And I, I know, I, I think I'm kind of happy keeping my work and my home life separated right now. Gaming as a whole teaches you a lot of valuable life skills from an early age through now, and a lot of Magic players that I've interviewed have really praised the game for when they play at the highest level because it works on social skills and teamwork and being able to communicate through languages and dealing with travel. Do you feel as a developer that it is important that this game provides that kind of message that it can help people and more than just here's some cards, turn some cards, let's play? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's kind of what draws you in if you're someone kind of prone to, to 
getting enjoyment out of that kind of stuff. The fact that it, it does, you know, the, the one people talk about the most is the fact that it helps you make very important decisions without perfect information. Uh, and, and life is full of those kind of situations where you need to you need to decide something very very important. You, know, you don't know how it's going to turn out, but it, you know, uh, calculating kind of all potential outcomes and choosing the best one. Uh, and magic is so so good for that. Uh, on top of all the social and the math and and, uh, and the, all that other stuff. So I think more than most other games, you know, this allows you to do that. Uh, and it is very, very important. It's kind of a selling point. And we've heard everything from this is helping me on my SATs. I didn't know what Verdurin meant until I played Magic or Pernicious until I played Magic to you helped my son. You know, he didn't have any friends and now he does. Uh, and all the way up through, you know, this helped me get a job on the as a hedge fund manager because I, you know, I've honed my skills at, at, uh, at working odds so well playing this game. So it, 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 there's there's stuff to be learned all the way up the up the ladder. Now, what the core set changes to make it better for the new player to learn? Do you feel it's accomplished its mission? Oh, absolutely, and I think it's the it's accomplished its mission where the, to the point where the you know I think the experienced players enjoy them now far more than they did before as well, which is kind of a, a, a double win for us. Uh, in the game, I felt, felt it gotten a little too mechanical, kind of drifted from its heart from where Richard Garfield started, where it was like all of your favorite fantasy creatures come to life in, a, in a, an epic battle, and it became like, here is how you can move cards from zone to zone profitably. A little bit too much of that. Uh, so when we returned it, the flavor of it to that, and on the same time we kind of streamlined the rules to get rid of stuff that we've been seeing cause problems over time. Uh, on top of that, with Duels of the Planeswalkers, that kind of helps you figure things out in the comfort of your own home before you venture out into the world. You know, what a great recipe, and it's worked great for us. What is your greatest success so far in development that you think, what, it could be an individual card, it could be a set, uh, what do you feel is your greatest success so far? I mean, me personally, it's definitely Magic 2010. Just that, that whole idea of starting over uh, what's in it, you know, th throw out all the sacred cows, it's going to have new cards, it's going to have different rules, it's going to be based more on flavor than function, it's uh, going to come out every year, uh, we're going to play it at high level events, we're going to have Grand Prixes and whatnot, like that was a, a big shift, it was a big swing, and that's the one that I am, will probably always be most proud of, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to, I don't know that I'll ever need to do anything quite that drastic again, uh, but I, I do think Innistrad, uh, might be the best set we've ever made uh, as a whole. So, just it is the perfect combination of form and function in my mind. Uh, and I, I didn't have all that much to do with it. I was more of a cheerleader, and I was more of like a reassuring people. No, no, we can do these double-sided cards. It's a great idea. And um, you're a little nervous, but I think it's going to go over great. Um, but all positive. For, you know, there's a few logistical issues. Some of these guys out here don't like dealing with the draft or whatever, but in general, everyone's having a great time. They love the decks that come out of it. They love the draft strategies. They love the flavor. It's just, it's going to be hard to find. Now, when you kind of came out with Innistrad, you like to do, there are a lot of tribal themes in there. Mm -hmm. and there have been a lot of tribal themes in the past, but you're now mixing them, like human werewolf. And yeah. it's providing people with more options on how they play. Was that part of the game plan design? Um, the first time we really started crossing things up, I mean, Onslaught crossed things up a little bit. There were like bird wizards and both of those tribes kind of mattered. But in, in uh, Lorwyn Morningtide, we really went whole hog on like, this set's about half of your creature types, this set's about the other half. 
and frankly, I think we did it wrong. Um, the, the, it was so complicated. You'd have a card that said your warriors do this, and you have another one that said your elves do that, and you're trying to look at all the cards and figure out who it affects and who doesn't affect, and this equipment is better on this guy but not on that guy, and then you have changelings thrown in. Um, and we just saw over and over again, even internally, people that weren't in R&D just like stumbling over what they're supposed to do and freezing up and getting paralyzed by all the, all the choices. Um, so we scaled it back a lot. Like as tribal sets go, Innistrad is pretty low key. There's a, just a, a, a few key cards that make you want to build a zombie deck, and the rest of the zombies are more or less just there for flavor. Um, but I think we got the mix right. Yes, there are human werewolves. Uh, there are humans that die into spirits. Uh, you know, the, 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 it, not only is it the, the right story. Um, you know, it obviously makes sense that it's a human and a, and a werewolf, but the, the gameplay shows up just the right amount to, to kind of tantalize you with how some of these cards work together without being so overbearing and, and determining every decision you're making as you play. Going back to when you released packs that you were one side or the other, uh, when that came through development and when people had to go to their play day and choose which side they wanted to be on to play, the Mirrored and Besieged? Yes, yes. Yeah. That was wildly successful and drew almost an even split. Yeah. Well, first of all, did you see it was a success? And second of all, potentially, is that potentially something that could happen in the future? It was absolutely a success. Um, that the, the attendance and interest in that pre-release compared to the ones around it was through the roof. Uh, I mean, we, we rarely, you typically don't see a second set drawing more, more players to the pre-release than the first set. And this one did, uh, and all the stories were great. Um, we 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 weren't sure if it was going to be an even split. We kind of hedged our bets on how much product we sent out there. Like we knew Phyrexia was going to be attractive to people just because the bad guys are always kind of cooler, and we thought the mechanics of that half of the set were better, at least more fun. Um, but so we sent out a lot more product than we would need for a 50-50 split, just to make sure that everyone could play what they wanted. And lo and behold, it ended up only about five percent on either side each way. The good guys still have a, an, an appeal to a large seg segment of our audience, which you know, gives me hope in humanity. Uh, but yes, and I do think we are we are definitely talking about where else can we pull this off? Is you know this factionalization idea really went over well, uh, and you know players look for something to latch onto to identify with within the game beyond just like I like the color red, you know. And, and I think it was a high point for us, kind of delivering story about what was happening in the set. Uh, you know, outside of just reading flavor text or whatever. So it was great. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the people, just maybe even about you or just how you think things are right now? I think things are, you know, Magic is doing the best it ever has right now, and that's because I think we are trying to make something that everyone's going to enjoy. Um, we're not, we, we've definitely moved into a more casual space recently with Commander and Dual Decks and things like that, which we don't, weren't doing years ago. We have uh, a way to teach you the rules quickly with the, with our Xbox game. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the effort we're putting into making our sets draft well and our constructed environments stand up to the rigors of the, the best players in the world playing them uh, has proven very successful. Like these, these guys, the best, the best of the best, are, are, are really happy with, with the sets we're putting out right now. So... I think you can have it all, and I think right now we're experiencing that, and it makes me very, very happy to be part of it. Uh, so, you know, I think every Magic player should find something now in the game that they enjoy, and we'll keep doing that for a long, long time. 
Thank you for your time today. You're I appreciate it. One of the amazing things about doing an interview like this is that you get someone like Aaron Forsythe open and honest about magic and about what his views of it are and the things that have happened and are happening. You can reach me at themenofmagic at gmail.com where we accept all emails, questions, people you'd like on the show, comments, always welcome. You can reach me on Twitter on as my own personal account as thebeamy, T-H-E-B-E-M-E, or the one for the show is The Metamagic. This has been another part of my series of Worlds interviews with more to come. And again, thank you for listening.